BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Tong. Even though COVID-19 vaccination rates are rising, some 20% of adults polled say they won't or are unlikely to get a shot. And health officials are turning to influencers on TikTok and Instagram. Recognize this voice? Vaccine, 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 vaccine. I'm begging of you, please don't hesitate. Vaccine, 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 vaccine. Because once you're dead, then that's a bit too late. (laughs) We'll talk about vaccine hesitancy, social media, and the science of changing people's minds. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Scott Tong. More than half of American adults have now had at least one shot of a COVID-19 vaccine, but one in five or so say they're reluctant. To connect with people who are hesitant, public health experts are turning to influencers on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and using social media like never before to reach younger, more diverse audiences and hard-to-reach communities. Joining us to talk about influencers, vaccine hesitancy, and how to respond to it are Sian Banot. He's a behavioral economist at Swarthmore College. He advises officials, including the mayor of Philadelphia, on social science and communicating public health information. Sian, welcome. Hey, Scott. Good to talk to you again. Hey, thanks for being with us. Angela Rasmussen is a virologist at the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization at the University of Saskatchewan. Thanks, Angela, for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And Kristen Choi, registered nurse and assistant professor of nursing and public health at UCLA. She's delivering vaccines locally there and studying vaccine hesitancy. Good morning, Kristen. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Good to have all of you. Stan Bonot, let me start with a broad question for you. So I fancy myself a rational guy, right? I read the baseball box scores. I follow the Dow. I, you know, bring on the data. But is there evidence that you know, and when I make my decisions, actually, maybe not, I'm not as rational as I might think. 
So absolutely there is. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there's uh, years and years of evidence from behavioral science to suggest that we don't always think through every decision we make rationally. Uh, and as it pertains to vaccines and COVID-19, uh, it's particularly problematic when there's a lot of uncertainty and risk in the air. People tend to lean a little bit more on our uh, impulses and our behavioral biases uh, in those contexts. So uh, we, we really do have to be aware of our non-rationalities uh, these days. Uh, so so particularly, particularly so when there's uncertainty? I mean, the data is still rolling in on this all. That's right. You know, uh, we, we don't have a lot to grab onto uh, to make rational mm. decisions in the absence of, of, of data and certainty, right? So in a lot of domains, you know, you mentioned baseball box scores and other things like that. There's a, a concreteness to that, right? We know what a, a home run means a home run. You know, we, yeah, we yeah. saw it with our own eyes. Uh, it's a little different with, uh, with COVID, unfortunately. Now, you study these cognitive biases you talk, you talk about, uh, how we take these kind of mental shortcuts sometimes that can lead us to, to risky decisions. One of the $5 words that I've heard you talk about is optimism bias. So tell us, what is that? And, and what are we finding with the vaccine hesitant among us? Right. So, um, you know, uh, you know, of course, optimism is a, is a good thing, right? That, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, we, we think of that as a positive thing, you know, uh, uh, to have. But um, optimism bias is this idea that, um, uh, you know, our cognition drives us to sometimes, you know, believe that, that you yourself are less likely to experience a negative event than, than, than other people, right? So we're sort of overly optimistic when it comes to, uh, you know, to, to outcomes for ourselves. And, and you can imagine in the domain of COVID, and we look around, we see lots of you know bad news, but we think you know surely that won't happen to me, right? So we kind of have a, mm. a, a predisposition uh, towards that that sort of over optimism when we're looking at our own outcomes. So if if I you know I go to the grocery store three times, five times, I start to think I'm bulletproof. Is that part of this? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you, okay. you, you mentioned data up front, right? So we, we kind of react to the data that we receive. And if you go to the grocery store a few times, you, you know, nothing goes wrong. You kind of, you're gathering data that suggests that, you know, everything's going to be fine, right? But obviously, as we know, hmm. everything is probabilistic to some extent. So every trip you take, every risky behavior that you take increases your probability of a, of a bad outcome. And obviously, you only have to get COVID once. Yep. Uh, so, so it, you know, uh, the data can, can deceive us and our experiences can deceive us. Yep. Uh, Kristen Choi, you're on the front lines in California talking to young people about vaccines. I mean, do you find people saying, you know, uh, there's blood clots out there. We've heard about this Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It's not uh, perfect. You know, I, I knew there was something suspicious or, or dodgy about this, people kind of directly going to perhaps the bad side of the news? Yes, I, you know, unfortunately, even at the point when people are coming to get a vaccine, they often still have questions. And I'm finding a lot of people that still believe a lot of uh, myths about the vaccine that just mm. aren't true or just have questions or concerns. Um, one of the most common I hear is that the vaccines will somehow change DNA, which is, of course, not how they work and mm. no part of the mRNA vaccines. I also have a lot of people come in really concerned about side effects they might get and how it's going to affect their their lives and their jobs. You know, just this week, California has opened up the vaccine tier to include uh, adolescents. And I saw yeah. quite a lot of adolescents this week, many of whom were really concerned about their ability to go to track meets and play sports and, and what it would mean for their lives. So I, I do still see a lot of concerns, even amongst those who are there to get the vaccine. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I just wonder if you have one, for instance, that's really salient in your mind that'll really kind of put a human face on on this skepticism. 
Yeah, I, I can think of a couple of examples. Um, you know, earlier this week, I, I was giving vaccines and had a, a group actually come in, a family of uh, a couple of siblings who were teenagers and, and their mother who were all getting vaccines. And, you know, um, they had a number of different concerns. Uh, one of the members of the group was actually pregnant. And, and mm-hmm. she said, um, you know, is this vaccine going to hurt my baby? Sure. I, I'm here. I signed up, but I just don't know how it's going to work. Uh, one of the kids was concerned about um, their sports and what it would mean for a track meet they had coming up. And uh, it just in general seemed like they knew it was important to be there. They were worried about COVID, but just didn't have a lot of basic information about how the vaccines worked. So, you know, I, I try to go back to the data with uh, with patients and let them know that, you know, even though the vaccines are relatively new, uh, they've been tested the same way as other vaccines and just to let them know what to expect. And I find that being open and honest can really help to to settle those concerns. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Angela Rasmussen, let's talk about the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which which you got and you wrote about, and we know the CDC today is meeting to kind of assess the the risks, uh, potential risks of blood clots, etc. Um, I believe we know that there have been six cases of of these blood clots. Is there something about human nature that we you know, focus on more of the risk. Oh, six people had something bad happen to them rather than, say, the benefit to everybody else who got the shot? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's from my observations, it's kind of been a little bit of both. Some people have mm. been very um, concerned about the risk, even though the risk is is certainly relative. I mean, while, this, while these uh, side effects is a particular kind of blood clotting with some particular clinical features that are very, very unusual mm-hmm, anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very unusual among people who got the vaccine. The risk of, of any kind of blood clot is much higher, for example, in, in things that we do every day, um, taking hormonal contraceptives, flying, smoking cigarettes, and actually getting COVID. Mm. Um, so all of those things have a much higher risk than getting the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is why I'm not particularly worried uh, for myself. And I'm on day 18 post-vaccination now with Johnson & Johnson. Um, but I understand why some people, because these these blood clots are very serious, one of the six uh, cases did did die yeah. uh, as a result of having this blood clot. And actually, there were seven cases that, that are known so far because one person developed this condition during the clinical trials. Um, so it's still very, very rare. Um, and I think that some people are very concerned about that. But other people are saying, hey, you know, this is actually really irresponsible to be focusing on this handful of cases relative mm. to the mm-hmm. number of doses that have been administered we are actually going to be slowing down our vaccination efforts and we're going to be potentially increasing vaccine hesitancy. So I think I've seen uh, sort of both sides of this equation where people are very worried about a very low risk and people are very worried about sort of an unquantifiable risk of uh, of how this will be perceived. Yep, and when you hear people saying both of those things, just briefly, how do you respond? Because they'll come to you saying, well, you got the shot. What do you think? Yeah. So um, I will tell them that personally, um, it it really does have to do with your own tolerance for risk. And personally, I'm not concerned because I do understand that as somebody who, for example, uh, took hormonal birth control pills for over 20 years, um, I was at a much higher risk of having a blood clot, including a serious blood clot, including a stroke, from that uh, than, than I am from the Johnson & Johnson mm, vaccine. Mm-hmm. But I do understand 
uh, that, that people might not be comfortable with even a, a very low risk like that. And that is something that I think needs. Hope oh, you know. I think we have lost Angela Rasmussen briefly. We'll, we'll get her back. But as we're doing that, let me ask uh, Sian Benot about this. Is there the evidence, I guess, from behavioral science studies that we can be inclined to focus on, even if the percentage is really low, right? Something bad happening. You know, I'm going to go to the beach and there are sharks out there. I mean, that kind of thing. Right. So, you know, I think you hit on, on uh, the concrete example. So, I, you know, you can think about this as, a, as an uncertain world, you know, a world where we don't really know the underlying probabilities and we sort of learn them over time. Yeah. So in those okay. environments, we, we often just lean on that really salient case, right? So, you know, you read an article that describes what happened uh, to somebody who got this blood clot. And now suddenly your, your sort of lizard brain thinks that, mm. well, if you take the J&J vaccine, you, you know, you get blood clots. I mean, you, you immediately connect those two. And mm-hmm, probabilistically, mm-hmm. you start thinking of it as like a 100%, right? Or closer to 100% than it truly is. You know, the anecdote is much more powerful than, mm. than the sort of raw, boring data statistics, right? Uh, that that one, for lack of a better expression, sexy example, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, in this case, not sexy at all, but, uh, you know, that, that, that one sort of vivid example uh, sticks in our minds and, and distorts our probabilistic assessments mm. of the world. And, and let me ask you about social identity, uh, social groups. Some of the surveys that we're reading about vaccines and who's getting them show that certain groups, African-Americans, rural Americans, Republican-Americans, people who identify in those categories are less likely to get a vaccine or say they plan to. So for certain groups where public health officials, folks like you are really trying to get the numbers up, does it matter who they get their vaccine information from, right? There's the CDC director on TV. There are their friends on Facebook. There are the people at the bus stop. Does it matter where the information is coming from? Yeah, it absolutely does. So, so you know, the, the work on social identity and psychology and economics suggests that, you know, we like to think about people as having preferences, right? That mm-hmm. they have mm-hmm. these innate preferences that come from, you know, the things they like and the things they don't like. Um, but in reality, uh, people's preferences are shaped by the groups that they uh, associate with. And, and so the examples you, you know, you presented Republicans tend to uh, look at other Republicans to, to get cues for what they should think and how they should, uh, how they should behave. So, uh, yeah. un, you know, unfortunately, identity is something we have to grapple with here and thinking about how to message. I understand, right? That's uh, Cian Benote at Swarthmore College, behavioral economist. We're going to take a quick break and come right back. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Scott Tong. We're talking about coronavirus vaccine hesitancy and how to combat it. I'm joined by Sian Benote, behavioral economist at Swarthmore College, Angela Rasmussen, virologist at the University of Saskatchewan, and I'm happy to say we've got her back, and Kristen Choi, nursing and public health professor at UCLA. 
We want to hear from you about all this. Are you hesitant about getting a shot? Or were you hesitant but changed your mind? Are you perhaps worried about your child getting the vaccine? Call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions at forum at kqed.org. Christian Choi, let me ask you um, about public health professionals. You're a nurse. Uh, I've said my wife is a nurse practitioner, and people certainly trust anything she says way more than they trust me. Right? Public health professionals are these high-trust people here. And yet you're looking into why nurses statistically can, can be statistically hesitant about getting the vaccine. I'm just curious, what are you finding? Yeah, it's a great question, Scott. Um, unfortunately, we're seeing that the the issues with vaccine hesitancy do extend to healthcare and public health professionals in some cases. Mm. Uh, early uh, back in December, when the vaccines were first authorized for emergency use, and healthcare workers were really some of the only people eligible, we saw some really concerning disparities in uptake among nurses, and particularly mm. that a lot of nurses who worked in nursing homes that were hardest hit by the coronavirus uh, were among those least likely to take up the vaccine. Uh, we've seen that improve over time, which is great news, kind of how um, the general public has also improved in their confidence in these vaccines. But the research I'm doing is still showing that there are some nurses out there that still have questions and concerns about the vaccines. Um, there are a couple of reasons for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that part of it is that, you know, nurses who have kind of a frontline view of healthcare know the history of where biomedicine has gone wrong and how it's hurt patients. And I think Mm, that they mm -hmm. are inclined to want more rigorous research in some cases to be confident about pharmaceutical products for themselves. Um, I'm also finding that nurses, of course, are a profession that's mostly women. Um, There Mm -hmm. are a lot of young women nurses I've talked to who are pregnant or breastfeeding who have concerns about taking the vaccine during pregnancy without more data on those issues. Um, And then there are some who just uh, simply feel like a lot of others out there that they want to just wait a little bit longer and and just be a little bit more sure about the safety data. And they've told me they're a not yet, uh, not a no, and and that they just want to see more data. Those are fair points. Yeah. I mean, the data, we're still collecting it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, those concerns that I'm seeing among nurses, I hear those same concerns from people who are not healthcare professionals. And I just think it's important when we talk about messaging that we are also sure to reach out to those healthcare workers because, uh, you know, for them, it's very important that they are protected from the coronavirus so that they can take care of all of, of us and yep. be able yep. to do their jobs. Mm-hmm. We have a caller, Bennett in Alameda. Hi, Bennett. Hi there. Um, so my sister is vaccine hesitant oh. and, you know, we're both on the same side of the political spectrum, similar education level. Um, you know, I'm vaccinated. My girlfriend got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and she wants to wait for legit FDA authorization and not emergency use. But I'm trying to sort of convince her that, you know, mm. time is of the essence and just trying to figure out how to communicate best with her. Cause you know, our dad is very adamant that she gets a vaccine, but she doesn't respond well to that. So any tips to sort of communicate that effectively? Okay, thanks. Let me talk. bring this to uh, Angela Rasmussen. For people who say, and this also seems like a reasonable argument, you know, I'm going to wait until this is fully approved by the FDA before I get my shot. How do you talk about that? Well, first of all, I, I usually ask people what what they think that FDA, full FDA approval um, actually means in Mm. comparison to the emergency use authorization. And in some cases, uh, people believe that the emergency use authorization 
is issued uh, without uh, enough data, basically, to show that the vaccines are safe and effective. And that's that's not really true. Um, Mm. The FDA does require additional data, including long term follow up data from participants in clinical trials to issue a full FDA approval. But uh, the the FDA emergency use authorizations are given based on a very large data package that includes data from a fully powered, uh, full size, Mm -hmm. 30,000, 40,000 participant clinical trial. Um, And that that type of clinical trial does allow us to really uh, assess the safety and efficacy very well. Another thing that people say, well, we don't have enough long-term data. That's actually Mm -hmm. what I want to see. Um, Well, most vaccines uh, that have been associated with very rare side effects, as we're seeing with Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is authorized in other countries, uh, those types of rare side effects occur very soon uh, after vaccination. So they're going to occur primarily within the, the six weeks following vaccination. Beyond mm. that time period, we are not likely to see those types of severe adverse events, uh, such as, uh, as the blood clots that cause this particular type of stroke. Um, and we are not going to, to probably see that. Uh, so the FDA will be looking at that long-term data when they are considering some of these vaccines for full approval and licensure, but they're probably not going to be much different other than adding additional data about long-term durability Mm. of the vaccine. Um, And that is what actually the FDA has told Pfizer now that they do have enough data. They've collected enough long-term data uh, from their clinical trials to actually apply for full FDA approval and licensure. Oh, okay, so that could be coming before long. Bennett, are you are you still with us? I wonder. Yeah. Uh, uh, Angela Rasmussen has described this right this temporary authorization as emergency authorization as empirically robust. Uh, you know, they didn't take any statistical uh, shortcuts here, so the data seem to be solid here. Do you think that would help you? talk with your sister i think somewhat i think a lot of it too is you know she's hesitant with the the mrna vaccines that they're a new technology um Mm -hmm. and and just you know i i think it's still about sample size and i guess the other question i have is sort of tone and and ways to impress upon someone the the risk of COVID itself. Cause I'm, you know, she's a chef and I'm like, what if you don't taste for six months because you catch COVID, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's mm-hmm. my kind of, that the risks of COVID are unknown compared to relatively known risks of the vaccine. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, th- thanks for the call. Let me ask the tone question to, to Sian Benot. Um, I, I guess as I've, I've researched some of this, it seems it may not help to pummel people with data <laughs> to try to right. talk to them or talk to their issues of, of hesitancy. So to Bennett's question about tone and how to talk to people very close to us, how do you think about that? Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of us who are um, not vaccine hesitant um, sort of have this, this impulsive reaction towards people who are of kind of like, you know, Oh my gosh, what are you doing? You know, like you got to do this, right. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's almost this, this, the, you know, the tone is very, um, maybe accusatory is not the right word, but you know, something along those lines, you're really trying to compel them to do it. Um, mm-hmm. But that can actually create exactly the opposite effect uh, as you intend. So there's this idea in psychology about psychological reactance that people mm-hmm. respond to perceived constraints on their freedom by sort of 
pushing back against those constraints and actually doing the opposite of what you're trying to compel them to no, do. No, that is you're, you're taking away my, you're forcing me, you're taking away my liberties and it actually Yeah, exactly. Backfires. So I'm going to assert my independence, you know, okay. and, and uh, you know, and, 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 and I'll show you, you know, that, that I can, I can behave as, as I want to. So you, you, like, I think a, a really important thing to think about is, is empathy, right? Uh, taking an empathetic tone, you know, I, like, like we were discussing earlier, I mean, these are reasonable concerns. And so, so kind of uh, taking the approach of, you know, I hear you, I actually, you know, share some of those concerns and here's what got me uh, to the place to, to, to be willing to take it. Here's what I saw that really compelled me uh, can be a lot more, uh, you know, aligning yourself with them and with their concerns mm-hmm. and, and, and less likely to trigger that sort of, how dare you push me around kind of, uh, kind of response. Okay. So I should, I should delete my PowerPoint presentation here is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I haven't seen it. So, uh, yeah, it right. really <laughs> yeah, too many charts. Um, let's go to a call from Nima in San Francisco. Hi. Hi there. Um, I'm, I'm calling because, uh, when, when we're looking at pregnancy and, um, uh, what our professionals think about the risks, um, associated potentially with the lack of data on, on, uh, on pregnancies and, and a vaccine. Okay. Uh, Kristen Choi, uh, you've talked a little bit about pregnancy and risk. What are your thoughts? Yeah, the question of pregnancy and breastfeeding, I understand, is a really important one that's top of mind for a lot of people. I think the first thing I'd say is that we've actually learned quite a lot about pregnancy that we did not know back in December when the Mm. vaccines were first authorized. Um, Mm -hmm. So we know that Pfizer uh, and I believe Moderna also are doing clinical trials of the vaccines with pregnant women, but also that the CDC has a very large registry of uh, birth outcomes for pregnant women who chose to get the COVID vaccine. Now, the CDC registry is not a random trial. It's a sort of voluntary report data, so take it with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. But so far, of about 35,000 pregnancies in that registry, uh, all evidence suggests that the vaccines are very safe, and there are no, they don't appear to be any adverse birth outcomes or pregnancy outcomes associated with the vaccine so far. You know, we also, when we think about how the mechanisms for how vaccines work, there's really no theorized mechanism that would lead me to think that um, the mRNA would cause any kind of birth problem. Mm -hmm. So right now with early evidence, um, most of it points to it being safe for pregnancy and breastfeeding. And of course, if you get the vaccine while pregnant, there's the added benefit uh, that you could potentially pass on those antibodies to your infant. Yep. Okay. Okay. Well, we've talked a little bit about about mRNA, so I'm going to ask our our team here to queue up. Uh, We're going to play a few TikToks here um, because we're going to talk about social media and how to be how that can leverage the conversation and talk to people who are in that space. And we have a few queued up, but one TikTok is specifically about mRNA uh, by an influencer. And uh, can we hear that? Okay, Kristen Choi, so mRNA... Is not DNA. Um, talk a little bit, if you could, just about the what is the fear that some people have that that there's a DNA risk here. You know, I, I think it's really just about the name and the word mRNA. RNA. Okay. I think people generally don't have really you know in depth understanding of biology. You know, you haven't really studied that in depth. And when people hear that, I think they just think it has a relationship to DNA simply because it's similar letters. Um, and I'm finding that a lot uh, with, with people I'm talking to who have that concern. Okay, that, that this will somehow 
change their DNA? There's some kind of permanent something that will happen to their genetic code? Is that the, the yes, concern? Yes, exactly. Exactly. They, they seem to think that mRNA vaccines um, will, will change their DNA. Um, and that's kind of the mechanism of how they work. And of course, we know that's not true. And that's not the actual mechanism for mRNA. You know, the mRNA never enters uh, the nucleus of the cell where DNA is stored. And it's actually broken okay. down very quickly uh, once it enters our bodies. Yeah. Okay. Okay. understand. Uh, let's listen to, uh, we have one more uh, Tic Tac here ready to go, and this is on, on the side effects. Several of you have talked about side effects, and, and Kristen Choi, you've experienced significant side effects from, from your shot, as I understand it. But let's hear the Tic Tac on side effects. I've been hearing some pretty scary side effects to this COVID vaccine, so I thought I would share some of them with you so you guys can pass them along to your friends and family. The first side effect is that you're going to feel this weight on your shoulders lifted. It's going to feel weird at first, but then it's going to feel really good. You're going to be able to take this full breath of fresh air and excel for the very first time in over a year. The next one is that you may feel a bit of gratitude towards all the frontline workers and medicine and science and research that it's gotten us this far during a global pandemic. You may also feel a little bit of empathy towards all those people who have died of COVID over the last year who haven't been able to get the vaccine in enough time. So I want to put this to Angela Rasmussen. I'm glad we have you back. Um, Anything to this kind of messaging that it's a little surprising, right? The side effects are you're going to discover all these uh, benefits to yourself and the people you're, you're close to. You know, I I thought that was really wonderful because when I was talking to my parents who received um, both doses of the Moderna vaccine in Mm. February, my mom said that at the time I wasn't yet eligible for a vaccine. She said, I just can't wait until you get the vaccine. It feels so freeing. And that that really stuck with me. Um, I think that that even though some people like Kristen uh, do you have some temporary side mm. effects that can be unpleasant? And I personally had about 24 hours of fatigue and body aches after the Johnson & Johnson shot. That's nothing compared to this long-term feeling of freedom, um, peace of mind, knowing that I'm protected uh, against severe disease and hospitalization. Um, the, the feeling of gratitude to frontline healthcare workers like Kristen and her colleagues uh, the, the feeling of empathy towards people who, you know, got COVID before the vaccines were available. I think all of those things are long-term positive side effects from getting vaccinated. And that really is something that, that we should focus on, on mm. communicating to people. Is there a risk, you think, of talking too much to the, to the negative side effects that, you know, perhaps if we even trying to say, uh, debunk or realistically assess the risks of, say, the blood clots for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that it can actually give too much oxygen to to the risks, o- overstate them? Well, I think that that may be possible, but that hasn't been my experience and mm. observation. I think that um, over the long term, we do ourselves a disservice by pretending that side effects don't exist at all, because if people are going to get a vaccine and then they have a high fever, they have flu-like symptoms for a day or two, they say, hey, I thought you said that these vaccines are perfectly safe and that that it was going to be a great experience for me and now I don't feel well and I had to take the day off of work. 
um, that ultimately undermines our credibility. But I think there is mm -hmm. a balance that you have to strike. We shouldn't emphasize or overly emphasize uh, the, the potential negative side effects. We should make sure that people are prepared for them. We should make sure that we're not glossing over um, you know, some of these, again, temporary negative mm -hmm. aspects uh, for getting these vaccines or the, the very low risk of having a more severe side effect. Um, but I think that, you know, we shouldn't pretend that they don't, that they don't exist or overstate uh, what somebody's vaccination experience will be like, because that does also make it look like we are communicating dishonestly about the vaccines and we don't want to do that at all. Yeah, you have to tell it to them straight based on what we know. Uh, we have a listener comment uh, who writes, Some issues that I never hear discussed is the fact that healthy people like me who are on zero medications, have no health issues, have a 98% chance of making a full recovery if we catch COVID. Therefore, why would healthy people subject themselves to the risks of a vaccine? Can I go to Sian Banot on that? And uh, I imagine you have addressed this question before. You work at a university with a lot of healthy young people there. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I, I, we, we've unfortunately come to know that COVID is, is uh, you know, the kind of illness where you really have to think about other people and the risks that you pose to other people through, uh, you know, your infection, right? So um, I think there's a lot of folks out there who say, look, I'm, I'm young, I'm, I'm healthy, I'm not going to have serious side effects from COVID, what's the big deal, right? And I think there was a messaging failure right at the start, just we, mm. we didn't encourage people to think about this as, as a pro-social action, right? Social distancing, it's not just about protecting yourself from all these scary other people and their aerosols, but um, but really thinking about it as, you know, it's, it's my contribution to the society that I live in. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, I really think we have to find a different way to message to these folks who are at low risk uh, mm -hmm. and, and might look at the vaccine as a riskier endeavor than just going out and, and acting as normal in the world. Yeah, appealing to uh, folks who might think about their greater good and how they can how they can contribute to contribute to it. We're talking about vaccine hesitancy and the science behind it and how to communicate about this. We're going to take another quick break and we'll be back. This is Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. We're talking about coronavirus vaccine hesitancy and how to combat it. I'm joined by Sian Banot, behavioral economist at Swarthmore College, Angela Rasmussen, virologist at the University of Saskatchewan, and Kristen Choi, nursing and public health professor at UCLA. And Kristen Choi, let me read a comment here from Randolph and get your thoughts on this. I've heard the debate on pregnancy and the vaccine in the context of breastfeeding post-birth but can you address any studies on the ability of women to become pregnant? My niece is a nurse and won't take the vaccine because she says there are studies that she sees as a health professional that show an impact on the ability to become pregnant. 
Do we have any information on that? Uh, I am not personally aware of any studies that uh, link the COVID vaccines um, to inability to become pregnant in the future. Mm. I have also heard that concern raised before. And as far as I can tell, um, that one is a, a myth. I don't believe that there are any studies making that link at this point. Uh, okay. Okay. Just briefly, briefly Angela Rasmussen, any, any thoughts, any evidence? Um, not that, not that I'm aware of. Uh, I, I completely agree with Kristen that I, if that, if that evidence exists, I haven't seen it. Okay. Okay. Great. Let's go to our next caller here. We have Sean in Sonoma. Hi, Sean. Hi. Can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Hi. I just want to offer a perspective from those, um, in the, you know, as you would label it, you know, the vaccine hesitancy, uh, community. Um, and that is that, you know, uh, there's a lot of things that, that people are considering um, in this area. One is that you know not a lot of people talk about is the fact that these pharmaceutical companies have no, they are not liable for their products. So there was a law passed in 1986 that allowed this to take place. So, you know, for me, you know, we have to kind of back up and go, okay, hold on a second. How does an entire industry and these companies have, the ability to have to be protected from liability from the, the from their product harming somebody, and why would they need that protection? So I think that's one thing that people really need to understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll just run through a couple other points. Sure, and just today. just as, as you as you do that, yeah. can I ask you, Sean? Have you been vaccinated? Do you plan to be? Uh, I have not been by any um, vaccinations uh, okay. by the okay. major pharmaceutical companies, but I have taken. Uh, homeopathic um, understand okay okay do, can, um, do you have one more concern that you can spell out for us sure I know you guys have covered some of this but you know no no long-term studies 60 days not FDA improved there's a very high survival rate of over 99 percent for most people um, and also lastly I just want to point out that so that people understand if they want to go to other places to understand because not ever put in the media that there's a vaccine adverse uh, effect reporting system where people can go and they can see what's actually happening because nobody ever puts it in the mainstream media, which is the fact that there's over 2,700 people who have reportedly died after taking this vaccine. These are these are reports of deaths. They're not obviously substantiated by the medical system in many cases. Um, nevertheless, there are a lot of there's tens of thousands of injuries and 2,700 deaths plus. So mm. just I think that in all fairness. You know, there's a lot of propaganda telling people what they should do, but there is not balanced reporting in the mainstream media regarding the other side. So thank I understand. you. Understand. Okay. Okay. If you're still there, Sean, I just very briefly, uh, is there something about the term vaccine hesitant that you think doesn't capture it well? Um, no, actually, okay. I actually think that that's not a bad uh, term. I think okay. what okay. is problematic is, is, you know, anti-vaxxer, which is out there a lot, which I think also just sort of like tends to disregard the opposing view and therefore making it, you know, um, not something somebody should listen to. Yep, fair enough. Okay. Okay, great. Thank you, Sean. Uh, Angela Rasmussen, your thoughts on Sean's points about the financial interests of the uh, drug industry or data on deaths? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are these are great points, and I think that that people do need to understand what both uh, the the waiver of liability for the pharmaceutical companies 
um, why that was intended, mm. and also why uh, the, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or VAERS, database exists. The reason why the pharmaceutical companies are not liable for vaccines is that they would not manufacture vaccines if they were. Um, because mm. vaccines are actually not very profitable for many of these companies, especially uh, childhood vaccines that are, are generally given to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, things like the MMR vaccine, the, the polio vaccine, things like that. Uh, it, it really isn't going to be a blockbuster moneymaker for a pharmaceutical company. And you might think, well, well, why is that? We give these to everybody. Those vaccines are subsidized uh, because they need to be given to everybody. This is not a designer drug that mm. a pharmaceutical company can charge a lot of money for or could bill your insurance company for. These are considered essential uh, prophylactic uh, medicines that need to be given to everybody. So that's why the, the pharmaceutical companies have been uh, given a waiver of liability. It's so that they will be incentivized to actually make the vaccines, which we all need. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't recourse for people who have suffered a vaccine injury. They do happen in rare cases. Um, and people, when they have that, they can go to the so-called vaccine court and be compensated for those vaccine injuries. Um, so there is a way that people can, uh, if they are injured, seek compensation and redress um, for a, a vaccine injury. Um, now the VAERS system, as, as Sean pointed out, is self-reported. So those are, are adverse events that occur at the same time as vaccination, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that they are caused by vaccination. Um, those are those are things, they can be everything from I had flu-like symptoms to I had a blood clot. Um, and actually that is how the, the six cases of Johnson & Johnson were identified was through reporting in the VAERS system. Um, so the VAERS system is actually very useful for monitoring for rare side effects once a vaccine is out on the market and in the general population. And that's one of its, its most important uses is actually ensuring vaccine safety, allowing us to tailor our recommendations for who should take a certain vaccine, as I suspect we're going to see later today after the Advisory Committee mm -hmm. for Immunization Practices meets about Johnson & Johnson. So you're talking about some of the, the data in this database goes to this question of correlation versus causation. That is, some people may have had some medical issues, but were not sure if if they were caused by the actual vaccine. Th that's correct. Um, okay. So it's very okay. difficult to just say, I got vaccinated and then three weeks later, I had a heart attack. It's very difficult to say whether that heart attack was caused by vaccination uh, so, so what they will often do is is do a study um, to to determine if there is a causal relationship, okay. but that can't mm. be determined using the VAERS database alone. Understand, but Sian uh, Benot, can I put to you Sean's point that I think many of us have heard before that you know the media is not reporting this, all the information is not getting out here. There is, as he describes it, you know, another side of this that isn't being told to the public and there are financial interests or others that may be involved here. What do you I guess, make of that? I imagine you've, you've heard this line of thinking too. Yeah. Uh, you know, without, you know, uh, commenting directly on, on, on everything that, that the caller cited, I mean, I'm not familiar with, with all the data that, that the caller was citing, um, per se. Uh, but there's certainly this, this concern that, that, 
the quote unquote mainstream media may not be reporting on everything. And I think that that concern is, is kind of always valid, right? Mm. The, the, it's always a trade-off, you know, we're trying to balance, you know, our, our, our desire to understand the truth um, with the reality that, that there's no sort of natural truth filter, right? So we go to our trusted sources, we, we lean on our trusted sources. And I would just ask all the listeners to really make sure that you are exposing yourself to the most diverse broad array of, of media sources, both mainstream and potentially the, the quote unquote not mainstream. I would consider academia probably a little bit outside mm. the mainstream, not a lot of people reading our journals, but uh, you know, try to expose yourself to, to, to that information as well and make, and make the best decision that, that you can make about your own health. I, I, you know, I, it's, it's very difficult to, to assess causal relationships as Angela mentioned, um, and there's science for that, right? We, we, we lean on scientists and we lean on social natural science, um, you know, medicine, uh, uh, concrete research using randomized control trials to try to hmm. separate truth uh, from, from fiction. Uh, and, and I would just urge all listeners to, to, to do their best to, to kind of seek out a diverse array of opinions and, and make decisions based on, um, you know, based on the, the best evidence they can collect rather than the evidence that, you know, Facebook or, 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 or Twitter pushes into your account, which, which may be seen through a filter, right? And may, may not actually reflect a true reality for, for, for many listeners. Right. We all have our social media echo chambers, right? Just by the nature of how they, they work. Kristen Choi, we've been talking about messaging and how to potentially encourage people to make a decision to get the vaccine. But I imagine there are other things to talk about, right? To get the vaccination rate up toward Herd immunity, I, I believe it's been talked about, you know, 70 or 80 percent of society needs to have their vaccines for us to, to get there. I mean, what about logistical things like giving people free time off of work, making it easy to have their appointments, or, you know, we'll come to your neighborhood to deliver your vaccines to me, just lowering the bar in addition to communicating in a certain way. Is, is there evidence that that works? Yeah, I, I certainly think those barriers to access are still an important issue. And when we think about getting to herd immunity, we are sort of at the point where I think the supply demand uh, balance for vaccines is about to shift. And we're going to need to be thinking much more about issues of messaging. Mm. Certainly one group that I think is going to be very important for us to reach is kids and teens. Um, I think the vaccines are probably uh, close to to being approved uh, for younger teens, uh, at least the Pfizer vaccine. And we know that there are trials right now for much younger children and even infants. Uh, we will need some kids and some teens to be vaccinated to reach herd immunity. So I think there's a big component to thinking about parents, uh, their role in this, and also how we reach uh, kids themselves and thinking about these vaccines. Um, and, you know, the logistical barriers are a piece too. I, I have been a part of vaccine clinics in Los Angeles where we have gone out and vans to communities that don't have very good healthcare infrastructure, uh, communities where there might be people who are undocumented or do, who don't have health insurance and just don't have um, access in traditional ways. You know, a lot of the sites require you to have a car to drive in. Not everyone has a car. And one of the biggest barriers I've seen is just the technology to make an appointment. It's mm -hmm. a huge barrier for a lot of people. I think anything we can do to lower those barriers, to bring vaccines to communities where people are, will be really helpful for reaching people that perhaps just haven't had the opportunity yet. I understand the administration has been talking to Dollar General, right? I mean, one of these stores that they exist in communities where a lot of the other big box stores aren't in, as, a, as a way to perhaps right, deliver these possibilities to communities where, as you say, they're having trouble trying to get to vaccine sites. I want to read a comment from Liz. She writes, 
uh, after my first vaccine of Pfizer, my tinnitus, I hope I say that right, my tinnitus flared. I've had it for years, but after my first and now second vaccine, it's distractingly loud. No one is taking me seriously about this when I've mentioned it to family members or health professionals. I did a Google search, and it seems that I'm not the only one. Angela Rasmussen, thoughts on that? Or more broadly, when you get questions like this, uh, what do you say? Well, first off, I say I'm sorry that that's happening to you. And I'm also sorry that that the caller has not been taken seriously when complaining about it. Um, these are things that that really can impact somebody's life profoundly. And tinnitus, which is ringing in the ears, um, may seem like a, a trivial thing. But for mm. somebody who's experiencing that, it's very non-trivial. Imagine having ringing in your ears yeah. constantly. That's that's really terrible. Do we know why that may have been exacerbated by giving a vaccine? No, we don't, unfortunately. I've I've also heard um, from at least two people now that that getting a vaccine was associated with a, a herpes outbreak. Mm. Um, and one person I've talked to, they got a, a shingles flare up and another person, they had a, a flare up of their herpes simplex uh, infection. Um, we don't know what's causing that. Uh, we you know, it, it may be due to vaccination. It may be due to the vaccines activating your immune system, uh, doing all the things that vaccines do to provide you with that long-term protection can have unintended consequences. And even if it's not something that's going to put you in the hospital necessarily, like tinnitus, um, that doesn't mean that we should ignore that. This needs to be studied. We need to look into why that is so that when people do experience this, um, we can have some some good answers for them. And again, I, I hope that that clears up soon. Uh, that that does sound really annoying and it does impact people's quality of life. And I think we mm. need to take those uh, concerns seriously. But that just sounds like a challenge of timing here, right? Science and studies go at a certain speed and yet we're uh, the we're trying to vaccinate as many people as possible on a different kind of clock here. So I imagine, you know, some people might understandably be in the I'm going to wait a little bit while, uh, wait a little while like this comment. Yeah, I, I think that that is also reasonable for, for people to, to think like, you know, these vaccines came out very fast. I know that I'm supposed to get one as soon as possible, but I just don't feel comfortable doing it yet. I think that that scientists, science communicators, clinicians, um, we all need to be mindful uh, that that telling people, well, no, your concerns are not reasonable. You need to, to go get a vaccine now because that's what everybody needs to do um, is not very useful in terms of winning hearts and minds. And it's not very useful in terms of addressing people's very reasonable concerns. We need to take concerns like that seriously. We need to talk to people about what those concerns are and answer any questions that they might have. Uh, and hopefully convince them and persuade them that that they should get a vaccine sooner than later. Um, but also we need to respect people who just aren't quite there yet. And again, we need to to take them seriously and treat them empathetically and answer our answer their questions as best as we can. Let me squeeze in one last caller here. We have Anika on the phone. Hi, Anika. Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my yeah, call. Yeah, can you just very briefly, please? We're coming up on the end of the hour, but we want to yeah. get your call. Absolutely. Uh, just that most of the world does not have the vaccine, and so it feels like another, you know, we have this privilege in the United States, and maybe we could be a little bit more humble since many people want the vaccine and they can't uh -huh. get it. 
I understand. Yeah. Well. Uh, well. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, I want to ask uh, each of our guests just very briefly. Um, you spent a lot of time in social media uh, words uh, on this. Um, I mean, I imagine this is this is personal to you, Angela, Angela Rasmussen. Just very briefly, is this a, a personal thing to you that you're weighing in on this publicly? Yes, I mean, it's very personal to me uh, as a virologist who studies SARS coronavirus 2, um, who now is starting my own lab at a vaccine research institute. Um, it's it's both personally and professionally very relevant to me. Um, so it, it's something also that I truly believe that we can't have public health without the engagement and participation of the public. Yeah, so great. I think that okay. it really is part of my job to do this. Yeah. And Cian Benot, do you have a, a, a quick thought? Yeah, you know, I, 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 I'm really interested in how do we encourage people to make pro-social decisions, right? And, and so um, more broadly, there's lots of policy problems that are going to require people to really think about the collective and, and the global community uh, to speak to your last caller. So, you know, it's really personal for me in the sense that, you know, this is just one of many challenges that are going to require us all to, uh, to, to think about others and, and show empathy and, and show respect for other people and their views and, and also um, you know, do the right thing for, for, for the global community that we want to be a part of. So in that sense, I think it should be personal for all of us. Yep, yep, understand. Well, we have been talking about vaccine hesitancy and social media influencers. Forum is produced by Tina Lauerberg, Polly Stryker, Grace Wan, and Crystal Consol. Our interim senior editor is Judy Campbell. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, and Brendan Willard. Our interns are Leslie Torres and Kimia Akbari. Our executive editor is Ethan Toven Lindsay, and our chief content officer of, is Holly Kernan. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Scott Tong. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. 
Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.